One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, hello, and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from deep inside the West Coast Future Machine. Before we get to today's show, I wanted to thank you. Uh, It's been great to get back to it after the little Christmas sabbatical, and that's partly because of the support uh, from you, dear listeners. We've got a lot of great reviews rolling in, like this one uh, from August Will Be Great, who says, Well-produced. With inspirational guests, the relaxed interview style makes them an easy listen with loads of little gems of advice. Good job, Danny. Well, thank you, August. Uh, And random fact, August is my son's middle name. Um, So please, keep them coming in. In fact, press pause, go over, click on the little star emblem, maybe jot down a few words. I'll wait. Done it? Thank you. Now, on to today's show. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? What they really want is they want food that is safe for themselves and their children. They want food that is nutritious and and can really help people grow. And they want food that doesn't have heavy environmental impact. And if that's what they want, we do all of those things in spades in a way that organic food doesn't do. This is Chihyun, our senior scientist. This is Danny. He's uh, with the London Sunday Times. Have I been saying that right? Yeah. 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 So that was Mike Selden. He's the CEO and founder of Finless Foods and kind of an off-the-wall company that is doing what it says on the tin. They are growing fish flesh in a lab. And yes, that's right. Not the fish, just the meat. Uh, Selden claims it can be done on a massive scale and is potentially the solution to the environmental disaster that is commercial fishing. So... A couple weeks ago, I wanted to see this for myself, so I took a tour of their lab, um, which is in a little office park scrunched between the railroad tracks and a highway in a little forgotten industrial corner of Berkeley, just across the water from San Francisco. So we initially grow them in a bioreactor, so it's something like a fermenter, like what you grow beer in, and um, we are sort of basically creating them, and at first it's sort of just a a mass of cells in these bioreactors, it's just sort of a slurry, like a paste. From there, we need to give them the structure and texture that people actually want from real steaks, fillets, and sashimi. But at first, what we're working on are something what we call unstructured products. We're working on things like um, sauces, we're working on pastes, we're working on surimi, uh, fish cakes, croquettes. Like, fish is an ingredient, really, in other larger things. Um, and then also, there's a possibility for a lot of different, like, sushi mashes that can go on, like, spicy tuna roll-type stuff. Right, 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 right. After our tour, I sat down with Selden, who is 
still frighteningly young and uh, very idealistic, also very smart with lots of very smart backers and investors um, to talk about how this may all work, uh, how he plans to learn from the, the mistakes of the GMO industry and when exactly and perhaps most importantly, our fish and chips will be brewed rather than caught. Here he is. In terms of like when will the public get its hands on this, we plan on being in restaurants at the end of 2019. Wow. So, you know, we'll do probably something more like a limited release at first. We're looking at something. Like, where are you starting with tuna like we just saw? Or? Yeah, our main goal right now is bluefin tuna. It's a bit of a conservation effort. Bluefin tuna are often off the threatened species list every once in a while. They're very high value, which really helps us. But most of the reason why we do it is not because of its high value, but because for us, culturing a bluefin tuna cell costs exactly the same as culturing like a tilapia cell. So we're like, why not just culture the most high quality thing we can? Because that will be the most valuable to people and get people more excited about what we do. At first, we'll be creating price parity with current bluefin tuna, like just selling it for the same price that bluefin tuna is at. But eventually, since it's the same price as culturing any other fish, what we can do is drop our prices to the point where we give people a choice between eating cheap albacore and skipjack tuna filled with mercury and plastic or our clean bluefin tuna without slaughter, without contaminants for the same price. What we saw just in the lab, that's the beginning of this process. That's kind of the part one, as you say. Could you give just a quick kind of rundown of how this actually works and how, you know, you know, where we are basically? Yeah, sure. So what we do is we take a small sample of meat about the size of a U.S. quarter from a real fish. And then we isolate just the cells that we're looking for. These cells need to have two qualities. Um, They need to be able to grow out very quickly, and then they need to be able to turn into the cells that people actually want to eat, that muscle, fat, and connective tissue. Because muscle, fat, and connective tissue cells actually don't divide, so you can't grow them out. You have to grow out something farther up the stem lineage in order to get the cells you're looking for in the end. We do that. We get these sort of what we're calling progenitor cells, these cells that grow out. We put them in a bioreactor with media, which gives them all the nutrients that they need to eat, salt, the sugars, and the proteins, grow them out into large quantities. We then differentiate them, turn them into the cells people actually want to eat, the muscle, fat, and connective tissue, and give them the same structure, texture, and and feel of meat, and then uh, ship them. But you're saying that the stuff that we like to eat, that can't be grown? It doesn't divide. I mean, if you look at just muscle cells, muscle fibers themselves are complex, like almost knots of cells. And so they don't actually have any room to divide and they, their cell type doesn't know how. So what we do is we take cells that are a little bit further up the, the chain. They are not stem cells per se, but they have stem-like qualities about them. And these are the cells that come to the rescue and heal you whenever you have a cut or feel heal any sort of animal. When the animal has a cut, they come in and they just sort of recreate the muscle that was damaged and bind things back together. So it's not that they aren't meat, it's that they're only one component of meat. We could, you know, sell these to people and say they're meat because they are. We really want people to have the full experience of really eating all of these things together in the ratios that they're used to or into new ratios that they're more excited about. What we can do is create the exact ratio of fat that people are looking for. If people want that extremely fatty tuna that's super high quality, we can create that. If they want incredibly lean fish with no fat whatsoever for dietary needs, we can do that too. Since we have total control over things on a cellular level, we can create a personalized diet for people. Whatever they're interested in eating, we can produce. 
so what what you're growing in in that lab is the kind of the cellular skeleton then you can kind of give it the structure that you were talking about the kind of the part two yeah we're just creating all the cell types that can then be used to that can then be structured properly how do you turn that into something that looks like a fillet so there's many schools of thoughts on this schools of thought on this we are working on a few different things right now there's a lot of different potential pathways that people can travel down in order to get to the end goal. Everything from enzymatic binding, just using a food safe enzyme in order to make these cells have more of a solid form. That's probably the most simple solution to the most complex solution, which would be using stereolithography, using a two photon laser in order to organize these cells in the same way that you would etch a hologram into glass. Yet to be 100% figured out, I think, by anybody in any way that is scalable. You know, 3D organ printing already exists, so we already know we can do it. It's a matter of can we do it quickly and can we do it cheaply. Right. I mean, fish and chips itself is so simple, right? Because the fish itself is just sort of like this minced up and, and mushed around fish a lot of the time. Well, the good stuff is actually like a filet that's, that's battered. That's fair enough. So that we haven't done. But what we've, you know, we've done all sorts of prototypes in our lab so far, and we've created all sorts of different things. So have you that. eaten like a kind of a fish patty already? Like a kind of mushed up fish patty. Yeah, and not even just me. You know, we've um, we actually had a big prototype tasting back in September. We served up six fish cakes, and we had a bunch of our friends come in. It's about twenty five people, and so everybody had a bit of fish cake. How were the results? People said it was good. It tastes like fish. Part of the problem is that at the time we were working with carp, and a lot of people were saying, "I don't know what carp tastes like. This is good, but I'm not clear what it's supposed to be like." So we were like, "Well, we should probably work with a different species after that." So. Transition into Bronzino for a while, European sea bass. That got much more positive reviews because many people, you know, know what that tastes like. People were into it. It's it tastes like fish. Part of the thing that's great about this is that it's very it's very easy to get this to taste the way we need it to because it is what we need it to be already. We're not trying to recreate a taste using plants or something. We're using real fish cells that already taste like fish. Why are you doing this? What problem are you solving? <laughs> Why are you doing this? <laughs> Stop it. It's a lot of things. You know, for me, I really started this because I'm very concerned with animal welfare and, and fish are like some of the most abused animals on the planet. And a lot of the way we kill them in massive numbers, even if you don't care about that, which I think 99.9% of people don't. Fishing is an environmental and ecological disaster. Drag fishing is destroying ocean ecosystems. We currently have already fully exploited 52% of the fisheries on Earth, meaning you can't get any more fish out of them than we already do. 25% above that are either overexploited, in collapse, or in recovery. And so we actually can't get any fish from those anymore because we've ruined them. What does in collapse mean? It means that we have destroyed the food chain. We've fished that area so thoroughly that actually the population is not able to recover and is basically dying out entirely, except for in some instances where we're trying to revive them. And then on top of that, you've got the 23% of the fisheries that we could potentially go for to increase wild fish production. These are usually in places that have extreme weather conditions. They are too far from the shore to be eco- uh, to be um, economical, thank you. Or they're in politically contested areas like the Senkaku Islands, making it very difficult for us to actually... Senkaku Islands? You know those islands that were like contested between Japan and China for a oh, while? Yes. Nobody lives there. Like Nobody actually cares about the land. There are shipping lanes and fishing lanes. If you look at a graph of wild fish production, it's completely stagnant and has been stagnant for decades now because we can't increase wild fish production, which is why we've been moving towards aquaculture. Yeah. And so aquaculture in some ways is is a good solution sometimes um, in that it is not destroying ocean ecosystems in as large of a scale. You can keep the fish in a smaller area. You don't have to do dragnet fishing. You know, you're purposefully creating a population of fish for us to eat. 
That said, it has many of its own problems. Um, aquaculture, like all industrial agriculture, needs to use pesticides. It needs to use herbicides, fungicides, insecticides. I feel like I've read things where they talk about large-scale aquaculture and what you have effectively is a giant cylinder in the water of fish poop and yep. nastiness all kind of mixed together. It can be a large spread of disease. There have been many cases where aquaculture facilities have been overtaken by sea lice, which is a pest. It's, that just gives me the willies, just, <laughs> right? that, that, just that word, sea lice. It's like land lice. You know, you're just not, <laughs> lice generally are bad. And so it just, when you put animals in that close conditions, like, they're not meant to do that. You know, biology is, is not up to the task of creating immune systems strong enough to deal with hoarders that close. And we have to pump animals full of antibiotics now in order to keep them disease-free as it is. And so it is also an environmental disaster, just for different reasons. It in many ways, and oftentimes, is a step up from wild-caught fish. And now the technology is at the point where for many varieties of fish, you actually can get the taste equal or better using aquaculture, which I think is awesome. But from an animal welfare perspective, it's actually a total disaster. And from an environmental perspective, it's not really that much of a step up a lot of the time. And there are certain varieties of fish, like the bluefin tuna, that actually still cannot be aquacultured for various reasons. I imagine to create a tuna and tuna meat like we are accustomed to, they need to be out swimming thousands of miles and doing whatever they do. Yep. Bluefin tuna need to be in constant motion, and any tank that you have for them will be fairly big. But there's all sorts of problems that you wouldn't even think of. For a while, the main problem they were having with bluefin tuna is that once they got past a certain stage in life, in aquaculture, they would stop eating. And the people who were doing the research were like, what's going on? Tried feeding them all sorts of different things. And the bluefin tuna just died and died and died until eventually they started feeding them different things from birth. And they figured out that actually because they had not given the tuna this set of nutrients from when they were born, their eyes didn't develop properly and they were actually blind and couldn't see the food. So it's not that they weren't hungry or they didn't want it, but they were blind and so died of starvation. This sort of problem is typical when you're dealing with organismal biology. Like it's a very complicated system, any full organism, to make a system in which you are growing them from birth all the way to breeding and to eventual slaughter is complicated. And it requires a lot of research into what is basically a black box. Like, what is this organism? You have to understand everything about it in order to properly work with it. And we have to deal with that in a minimal level because we are working with cells and we do need to understand what they're doing. But cells are so much simpler than entire organisms that it really makes things easier. We can measure the output easier. We can measure our inputs easier. We can keep conditions more stable. There's um, a higher population, meaning that we can run tests with, with better statistics. It's just simpler to do cellular biology. Have you thought about the public reception to this of like, uh, I'm eating a test tube fish. Uh, no, thanks. I'll go with the real thing. We have. Uh, we've, put, we've put some very serious thought into it. We are doing everything we can to not make the mistakes that the GMO industry made in terms of just really not talking to people about it and just sort of putting things on the market without explaining and having an open conversation about it. We're coming at this as environmental activists. Like I've never created a company before. I was a scientist. I was working at a hospital. My co-founder was the same. I was working at Mount Sinai Icon School of Medicine doing high-throughput cancer screening. He was working at Wild Cornell Medical College, also cancer research, doing primary cell culture. We are not some large faceless corporation that is trying to do this and also like drill oil wells in Saudi Arabia. We are very much committed to environmental activism and we're doing this for what we consider to be the right reasons, which are environmental ones. In terms of public perception, you know, you ask people what they wanted of food and they say they want organic food. 
and they say they want natural. But if you ask them to define any of those things, they have absolutely no idea what that means. Um, 80% of the people who say that they don't like GMO don't know what GMO stands for. Many people who like organic food think that organic food doesn't use pesticides, which is completely untrue. It uses more pesticides than non-organic food. But what you really ask people is like, okay, but what do you really want from organic food? What do you want from natural food? And people have very simple and very noble desires in that. What they really want is they want food that is safe for themselves and their children. They want food that is nutritious and, and can really help people grow. And they want food that doesn't have heavy environmental impact. And if that's what they want, we do all of those things in spades in a way that organic food doesn't do. I have been eating a lot of it mostly because I've been eating a plant-based diet for so long that I don't really remember what meat tastes like. And we eat it in order to iterate the taste and change our nutrients to make it taste better. So having me eat it, it's kind of like, why? But people on my team who do actually eat meat normally um, have been eating it for a pretty consistent amount of time. And so they're doing fine. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we don't see any problems going on with this in the future. You know, we're, we, we know we don't have the mercury in plastic that conventional fish does. And we know that this is just derived from a fish. And so it has a very similar nutrition content to fish. So we have very high confidence this is going to be a, a more nutritious choice than people currently have available to them. So you were working at a hospital working on high throughput cancer screening. And then you wake up one day and be like, I want to make fish flesh in a test tube. <laughs> How's that? How do you get there? It was not waking up one day. It was, it was years and years of thinking about it. I've always been a gigantic sci-fi fan and also a very big seafood fan. I grew up on the North Shore of Boston, and so seafood was a gigantic part of my... Clam chowder. Yep, clam chowder was huge, and lobster were both really, really uh, integral to me growing up. I went to a university that specializes in agriculture. I went to UMass Amherst, which is out in western Massachusetts. It's historically an agricultural college. It started in 1890-something, and around then, which is old for America, back then it only had three things you could study. It was machining, military arts, and agriculture. Military arts? I don't really know what that means either, to be honest. Maybe you're painting battlefield scenes. <laughs> I was picturing more like Sun Tzu type stuff, but (laughs) I don't think we have that as a major anymore. But anyway, so being in an agricultural school, you really, and studying biochemistry and molecular biology, which there is very focused on agriculture. There is this uh, thing called Panama disease, which wiped out all the bananas in the world in the 50s. And the banana that we eat now is actually a different plant that we've decided to call the banana. That fungus is still around. It's true, actually. So the banana before that was called the gross mackel. What we now used to be called the Cavendish. You know, like how we call plantains plantains? Yeah. It was considered like an alternative banana. And before the 50s, nobody would eat that because the gross mackel was apparently better. Um, and, and actually, that was like a plantain of the old school? Exactly. Interesting. So if you ever eat a banana-flavored candy right now and you're like, this doesn't taste like bananas, that's because that molecule was actually invented to imitate the gross mackel, not the Cavendish. I hate banana candy. It tastes like the gross mackel, so maybe you like the Cavendish better (laughs) and you think this is a good move. So you're on the fungi's side at this point. But basically this fungus wiped out all the bananas in the world and like, you know, regardless of feelings about gross mackel apparently being gross like you do, it's a danger to a lot of food supply. Things like tomatoes, wheat, cotton, basically a lot of crops that people use in order to survive, especially in Northern Africa. And so we were working on ways in order to just bat it back and defend crops from it. So basically, always been thinking about agriculture. It's always been a super big thing for me as an environmental activist in in a million different ways. And so we... um, Were you actually an activist? Were you kind of on the barricades and whatnot? I've been doing a bit of 
political activism my entire life one way or another. I've been very involved in, in DSA in America now. Um, worked on the the environmental caucus back in New York when I when I was in the New York DSA, and now in San Francisco I, I do other things. But Democratic Student Association, the Democratic Socialists of America, um, it's like the biggest socialist party in America. Right. So you're a socialist and a capitalist. I'm a socialist and a CEO. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Right. If people are listening to this in London, I feel like it's a little bit more acceptable there. In America, yes. I'm, I'm considered really weird. But then when Europeans like talk to me, they're just like, you're not interesting. I'm like, I know. <laughs> um, hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Agriculture itself is so incredibly inefficient, especially animal agriculture, which was one of the initial things that spurred me to stop eating meat and to stop eating animal products. It's just a crazy waste of energy. It wastes so much energy, so much land, so much water. It's just so much worse for the environment in so many ways. And so I was just thinking about, you know, how can we make this process more efficient and better for everyone? And I started thinking about the idea of just growing only the parts of animals that we want. I started looking into this and looking through scientific literature, and I found, you know, the people who really started this whole field. I found Modern Meadow over in Brooklyn by Andras Forgotch. I found Mark Post in the Netherlands, and um, I found New Harvest um, also in in New York. In finding them, I was like, oh, my God, I'm not crazy. And these are people just growing different types of animal proteins in the lab? Yeah, so Modern Meadow at the time was working on beef. They pivoted to leather. Mark Post is working on beef in the Netherlands, and the New Harvest is a nonprofit that I've actually uh, I ended up doing some work with. And that's sort of how I started this company. And they're just doing funding for grants for people to do PhDs in this field. There's plenty of us really thoroughly. What is this field called? We're calling it clean meat because it's cleaner. You know, it's got considerably less bacteria. We're growing meat under sterile conditions. We don't have to have any of this harmful runoff going on in industrial agriculture or in industrial aquaculture. And it's something that can really help you have a clean conscience while you're eating meat. You know, you're not... It's slaughter-free, it's pesticide-free, and it's toxin- and and contaminant-free. And so we think that clean meat's a good name for it. Looking at it from the scientific point of view, and also the venture capital, Silicon Valley point of view, when you talk about scale and the ability to scale, is it 
scientifically possible to make this actually scalable or to be like big fish, big B, big F or big meat or whatever yeah. to actually take those on and to replace them or to offer an alternative that anybody walking into a supermarket will one day be able to choose between the two. I do. We've done the math and I would never have been able to start the company if I hadn't done the math because people were like, you know, that's sci-fi, that's not real. But then if you can show them the numbers on cells need this to survive, we believe due to the evidence that we have read in these scientific papers that if we feed it this, 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 and this, which we can produce for this cost, we can produce meat that is inexpensive enough to serve to the average person. And it's just funny when people say this industry is impossible. I say, well, I've, have you done the math? And nobody who says that has ever done the math. And so are you guys, is there a community around the kind of the clean meat community? Because there's people like Memphis Meats and Impossible Foods who are doing basically burger meat and things like this or duck and poultry. There does seem to be a little bit of a community forming around this. Yeah, there definitely is. You know, there's just not a lot of companies doing it. Why now? Is it the science that has kind of reached a point where this is possible? Why, why all, all of a sudden does there seem, I mean, because obviously people have been talking about the problems with kind of industrial food production for years now, why we're at the point now where actually there's companies being started that, to address this. Recent advances in synthetic biology have really gotten this to where it needs to be. You know, not everyone knows this, but we're right now going through a synthetic biology revolution on scale with the invention of the computer in the 70s. This is going to really? change everything that we eat, everything that we use, all the materials that we make everything out of in the same way that the invention of the computer changed everything that we do. But it's going to be protein engineering. It's going to be regenerative medicine. It's going to be synthetic biology. And a lot of this is made possible due to just like a few sort of boring sounding advances, different advances in genetic engineering, advances in um, protein engineering, advances in really fast next generation sequencing. These things have sort of come together to just create this toolbox that allows us to do so much more than we could before. It was like the invention of the transistor. Everyone sort of said, what do you do with this? What is the point of this? But the people who were using it as a tool were like, just wait, this is going to be incredibly useful. You just have to see the tool for what it can do. It's exciting. It's a really, this is the exact right time to be doing any sort of project like this. Uh, it's the ground floor of synthetic biology. You should have seen the um, SynBioBeta conference this year. It's sort of like the largest synthetic biology conference. It's run by former NASA personality, John Cumbers. The excitement there was very real. It was really, really cool. People had finally, uh, this field had sort of come into its own in the past like two years or so. And it was finally getting the funding that it deserved, and it finally had the tools in order to fly that it really needed. So back to the, yeah. those kind of containers of pinkish liquid we mm -hmm. were looking at in the lab. Mm -hmm. What do you feed that? Is it just is it sugars and? Yeah. I mean, so what are the inputs to create the synthetic meat? What is what are you putting into it? It's really three broad categories of things. Um, so you start with the quarter of meat that you take from. And we just take the cells that we want from that. So it's actually, right. we're not even using the whole quarter. It's just, that's a giant chunk of meat, and we just want a few cells from it. We then feed those cells salts and sugars. We get them from food-grade suppliers. They are totally safe to eat, and you're already eating them. And then we have proteins. Now, these proteins are growth factors. Growth factors are already inside of you. They're inside of every single animal product that you eat. They're what tell the cells to divide. They're basically just a signal. Um, the cell gets the growth factor and then says, oh, I have this. I'm going to use the salts and sugars to build myself more biomass and create another cell. 
So these and are those extracted, or are those your kind of secret sauce your, that you've synthesized? We are really replicating the exact growth factors that are inside of a fish. And what we're doing to do that is we're taking the DNA that produces those growth factors inside of a fish. We are putting that DNA into a microbe like yeast. And then we're having the yeast produce these proteins. So they are, on a chemical level, the exact same proteins that come out of a fish and that fish use in order to grow. We're just producing them not using a fish. It's the same way. Just in a very focused, limited environment. We grow them in a fermenter, what beer is brewed in. The exact same thing that are inside a fish, we're just making them outside of a fish. Right. And so those are the inputs. That gets you to the, the actual fish mush. Yeah, that's more or less everything that we, that we need in there in order to... Uh, make the fish cells that will be structured and textured to create the steaks and fillets people want. And then the steaks and fillets, you need, I imagine, some kind of vegetable base or something to kind of give it that body and mouthfeel, et cetera. There's many different schools of thought, like I was saying earlier in this. One does use vegetables as a scaffold, but some don't. I mean, what I was mentioning earlier in terms of stereolithography, the two-photon laser, that's actually just using fish collagen. We make this fish collagen, and then you can sort of harden it in certain ways to make it sort of have this sort of scaffolding and you then wash away all the other collagen that, that wasn't a part of that, then you just sort of seed it with the muscle and fat cells. They will attach themselves as they're naturally meant to do and create something that doesn't use any vegetable whatsoever. It would be even on a cellular level, the exact same thing that people are eating now. In theory, you can do this with any fish. Yep. And have you had anybody, I don't know who the big fish company is, but a Cargill, a Tyson chicken, whomever, have they come knocking or expressed interest or they are they dismissive, the big food players? See, what's funny is that there isn't really capital B, capital F, big fish. Like, it's kind of not a thing. <laughs> I think a lot of that is because fish is very localized in its production. It'd be very difficult to create some sort of national corporation. I mean, granted, that exists, you know, like Bumblebee. That's a real thing. But we have been talked to by large players in, you know, agriculture in general and People seem excited about it. You know, They don't see you as a threat to their livelihood? Not at all. Our protein producers. Because you guys are kind of like the e-cigarettes of, of seafood. The thing is, like, if I were in their shoes, what would I do? Would I fight against a technology that could potentially be used by me to make myself more money? Or would I just jump on board and start doing it myself? Because they're protein producers. They're entirely non-ideological about this. They're just like, we produce protein. We are a company that makes money. And if this technology is a way to produce protein that makes money, we're going to do it too. And that's exactly what I want. You know, I come at this from the angle of, I want to spread this technology as far and as wide as I possibly can. And so if these people want to invest in us and license our technology to do this or to start developing their own technology and become our competitors in that space, awesome. That's perfect. We talked a little bit about the public perception and GMOs mistakes mm. and especially in Europe where a lot of our listeners are there's very different approach to regulation and also just how genetically modified food is perceived have you thought about that or do you foresee any problems like going beyond America yeah for sure so just to put this out here what we're making is not GMO based on every legal system that I have read on, and Europe is sort of a mishmash of all sorts of regulatory stuff, so maybe there's something crazy in there that I haven't seen. But that said, European regulation is is based a lot more on what people want. I don't see this being passed through Europe very easily, just based on how Europe has treated GMOs in the past. For that reason, we don't see ourselves having an initial European launch. We don't see ourselves moving to Europe for quite a bit. 
We think that if we can sort of prove how safe we are in America and prove how safe we are in Asia, then eventually we can move ourselves towards Europe. Who knows how things will go? We really hope that we can eventually end up in Europe. Um, some of our backers are in Europe and some of our closest ties are in Europe. I personally love Europe and would love every excuse to go there as much as possible. Time will tell. Well, because it's interesting also in Europe, particularly around the, the fishing policies, you have to th- throw away perfectly good fish if they're just, you know, half an inch too short. There's a lot of just astounding waste, kind of crazy policy around fishing and fishing quotas, etc. If this is proven to be safe and it is, people like it, it would seem a natural solution. But again, I don't know if it's... That's what I hope, you know. I, I hope that people will really see that. I think that we'll sort of prove that to people. That's the idea. If people in Europe are much more concerned about their food than people in America. People in Europe really do love the the implications behind organic. They want safe, environmentally friendly food, and we do produce exactly that. So if people can sort of get past the surface level of what this is, I think they'd really appreciate what we were doing. I mean, to your credit, you're calling it finless foods. It's not like you're dressing this up as something that it's not. We want to be really clear. I mean, we plan on labeling this. I don't want this to be snuck into the food supply whatsoever. Not only is it super important to not sneak into the food supply and to have an open and honest conversation. But I want people to be clear that what they're buying from us is better. We can change the nutrition. If people want higher levels of omega-3, omega-6, DHA, we can do that. If people want no mercury and no plastic, that's us. We don't have anything like that. No uh, added growth hormones, no antibiotics, that's still us. No environmental devastation, no animal cruelty. You're getting a better product. So we definitely plan on making it clear that they're buying something different. How much money have you raised? So far, we have raised $2.6 million in this seed round, and then before that, we raised another quarter million. So we're at about $3 million total now. Right. Who are your backers? Well, our first backer was IndieBio itself, which is SOS Ventures. Our big anchor investor, who we're really, really grateful for, is actually an Italian company called High Food. They make sustainable, natural, and healthy ingredients. They're a brilliant group of food scientists who are on this incredible mission to create a better food supply for people. And so they saw in us that we were doing the same thing. Our missions are totally aligned. Their skill sets complement ours and that we don't have strict food scientists on our team now, which is sort of its own field separate from biochemistry. It's more like materials science. And they're our main backer. That's so interesting that your main backer is a European company. Europeans are so forward thinking. I mean, there's so many brilliant European scientists and Europe is doing so much to try and transform the food system that Despite the regulatory mess, it sort of feels very natural. We are, at least at agriculture and science meetups in Europe, very popular. It's just the general populace that in general has a bit more trepidation about us. Yeah. So I saw the labs. They're not, I wouldn't say they're industrial scale. (laughs) No. So when you're talking about getting this out in the world by next year, how do you get there? Yeah, so we complete our R&D phase around um, the beginning of 2019. At that point, we have the cell lines that are robust enough and efficient enough to work. We have the media that's inexpensive enough to feed these cells. And we have our differentiation protocol, which turns these cells from things that can grow into things that people want to eat. And we also have our suspension protocol, which is getting these cells working in a large-scale bioreactor. We then start talking to people who can do basically the equivalent of contract brewing for beer. We don't plan on building our own facility. We plan on basically taking our materials and bringing them to already extant facilities and putting them in there. And from there, it's basically just adapting the cells to larger and larger containers. So in theory, I could, in the future, take a brewery tour and there's like beer, 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 fish. Yep. And we absolutely plan on doing that. We want our facilities to be extremely transparent. This whole thing requires transparency in order to get people's trust. It honestly 
it'll be like a brewery tour. If you're into breweries, which I absolutely am, I brew my own beer. It's super exciting. If you don't care about it, it's incredibly boring. I've brought numerous dates that I have bored to death into breweries, and oh, I think it'll no. be similar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we really, we really plan on like scaling up. You know, our staff right now is very small. There's only seven of us total full time. In the beginning of 2019, we'll be raising our next round, at which point we'll be scaling up to a, a larger staff that can deal with a larger facility. Is there anything that keeps you up at night, your biggest obstacle to actually becoming big fish, big B, big F? <laughs> it's all about reducing costs, and that's everything for us because we're sort of of this opinion that the two things that matter for this really are cost and taste. We are a group of scientists that are very firmly on a mission. We care about the environment. We care about animals. And so for us, that's sort of baked in, and it's just not as much of an issue. But cost and taste is what will sell this. You know, we're not looking at a vegetarian market. We're not looking at a vegan market. Those are small. Those are people who are already basically doing what we want. You know, they're already not engaging in the practices that are harmful, that, that we find harmful. This is about the normal person, you know, and, and normal people eat food based on cost and taste. And then some people eat food based on health. People are like, well, nobody will go for this because it's science-based. Nobody will go for this because it's it's technology. And, you know, people hate GMOs. And this sounds like a GMO, even though it's not. But for you and I living in America, I think the statistic people need to be really wary of is that 80% of people say they don't want GMOs in their food when they're pulled. Less than 1% of people shop at Whole Foods and farmers markets. I think that's a really important thing for people like me and, and like, like us to remember, because we live in these large coastal cities. What percentage of your friends shop at Whole Foods? Is it 100%? Because it basically is for me. It's not 100% just because it's so usuriously expensive, expensive yes. But I get your point. Yeah, it's yes. not 1%, yes. basically. No, you know? it's not. It's not 100% for me either, but it's it's close. You know, It's close enough that it's sort of scary. We're living in bubbles. You know, We live in, in areas of the country where people don't eat how the normal average person eats. And so you know, this idea of like people hate biotechnology and this will never catch on, I think one of the people who put this to best is Bruce Friedrich, executive director of the Good Food Institute. He said, if this only catches on with 20% of people, you've made a massive difference. If just 20% or 10% of the population switches to this, it'll be huge. The oceans will be able to recover with just that much. That's sort of what we're, what we're shooting for, at least at first. And we think that even if we just have a few early adopters, we can then prove that what we're doing is good, and this will just become a normal technology, like cheese. Like cheese is very much biotechnology-based. It's using fermentation. It's taking an animal product that is taken extremely unnaturally. We artificially impregnate cows because they don't just produce milk naturally like a chicken. We take the milk from them, and then we put it into a, like, a place where we wait with it in terms of um, let bacteria take its course. We produce rennet using synthetic biology and genetic engineering, and then we use that in order to create this delicious thing that's considered natural and that's considered healthy and that's considered good for, like, delicious. You know, eventually all technology becomes passe, and this will eventually be like that. The beginning of the end of industrial agriculture, or at least uh, livestock? I really hope so. I think in 100 years, we'll look back at industrial animal agriculture and think we were total barbarians. We'll just be shocked and appalled that we ever did anything like this. It's so inefficient. It's so bad for the environment. It's like how people now look at like a, a coal power plant or something. It's just like, why are we even doing this? We totally have better options. It's funny. I, I, a few months ago, we interviewed the CEO of Plenty mm -hmm. Indoor Farming. They are raising a bunch of different types of plants indoors, but they say they can make lettuce using 1% of the water that 
you would do so naturally just because there's no runoff, there's no, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, which is, it's amazing. Plenty is impressive. Vitek in Japan is set to become the largest vegetable producer in Japan, and they do everything using indoor farming. The world is moving this way. We're coming to another revolution in agriculture, and it's going to be a lot better for us. It's going to be extremely efficient. When people talk about environmental problems, they're always talking about cars. They're always talking about power plants. But agriculture is a massive chunk of the problems that we have environmentally. I mean, I think the largest single source of greenhouse gas emissions, as far as I know, is cows. Cow burps. Yeah, exactly. Cow burps and cow farts. And it's just like, why are we not focusing on this? This seems so big. And it's gotten to the point where, like, I, like, roll my eyes when people talk about solar panels, which I really shouldn't be doing because it's extremely important. But I'm just like, come on, we need to talk animal agriculture. We need to talk revamping the way that we eat first. And it it seems like such a larger and more dire problem to me that um, I'm hoping the public consciousness shifts on that. We move away from the idea of, like, electric cars, which we've sort of come to a standstill with in a lot of ways, um, and move towards the idea of creating better food for people and creating food that's not just better for people – in a selfish way, but also better for everybody in a collective way and in an environmental way. I agree, but it's a difficult ask because it's almost like uh, it's personal. The right to you know my cheeseburger is it's like an inalienable right. It's like in the Bill of Rights, you know. It's just like people yeah, I think it's feel the seventh s- one, right? Yeah, people feel so. It's in the Constitution. You have to be able to have cheeseburgers. <laughs> but you know that's why this technology is exciting. People can have their cheeseburgers and they can have it using this technology and, and their fish fillet their environmental footprint will be so much lighter. It just won't matter. The idea of veganism or vegetarianism will pretty much just become obsolete because what's the point? If you're already producing this stuff using biotechnology, you can be eating that cheeseburger and there's the potential for that cheeseburger to even have less of environmental impact than like a cashew or something. I mean, a bunch of cashews, not one. With this technology, we can really let people have their cake and eat it too. And you're right, getting people to switch their eating habits is extraordinarily difficult. That's why we really like this. We're trying to make it so people don't have to really switch. They have to switch something minimal, but they're still getting the taste that they want. They're still getting the price that they want. They're still getting the the nutrients that they're looking for. With this, we can provide all of that at the same time. I look forward to the next taste test. (laughs) Same. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much. Thank you. And that is all the time we have. Thank you for listening to another episode. Please do stop in the Apple Podcast. Take a moment. Give a rating and review. It really does help. Um, I really do appreciate it. So please keep those coming in. And in the meantime, of course, you can find me where I always am. In the newspaper, uh, the Sunday Times, online, thetimes.co.uk, on Twitter, at Danny Fortson. Or you can email me at danny.fortson, F-O-R-T-S-O-N, at sunday-times.co.uk. If you have any suggestions of subjects you want to hear people you'd like to be here to be interviewed any feedback is welcome so until next week thanks bye-bye hi this is craig robinson from ways to win and support for this podcast comes from invesco qqq Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.